This is The Celluloid Ceiling, a podcast about women in film, starting from the early days of Hollywood all the way up to modern cinema. Take a journey with me, your host, Becca, as I explore all the different facets of filmmaking and all the amazing women making these films. So welcome back to The Celluloid Ceiling, a podcast about women in film. I recognize that I have not been as on top of things as normal. In the conditions of the COVID-19, I have been just a little sidetracked. And while, yeah, sure, I have a little bit more time on my hands to be able to research, record, and edit, I just had absolutely no motivation. So here we are. Uh, But today is going to be the third and final episode about female directors. And it's going to be focusing on modern directors. It's going to be a big one. So uh, let's get to it. So after the 40s and 50s and entering the 60s, women directors started to become a little bit more likely and not always just in Hollywood. So there are plenty of women who are making independent films. And starting from the 60s until now, this still happens to be a major trend in ho- like well, in the film industry, not Hollywood per se, because the film industry is more than just Hollywood, obviously. So we see a lot more women directors through smaller studios or even funding films themselves. Uh, even actually the show Making a Murderer on Netflix was funded by the two women filmmakers basically all on their own before Netflix even picked it up. And in the 1970s, another wave of the feminist movement really helped expose those early female filmmakers that we had been talking about beforehand and kind of gave them a new life, which was really great. And it added more inspiration to female filmmakers in the 1970s. So a lot of women are actually being shut out of Hollywood still, which is really unfortunate. But we have seen an uptake in female directors, which is great. It's always good to see a lot more women in the industry. Uh, It isn't significant, but it is better than it was before. So there have been trailblazers like Catherine Bigelow, Ava DuVernay, and even Patty Jenkins, who directed the DC top superhero film Wonder Woman at the time that it was released. It was one of the top grossing superhero films, especially for a DC film. Uh, I do want to bring up women in horror for just a minute, just because horror is my favorite genre. Um, And it is a genre filled with what they call the final girl, and yet is severely lacking in women directors. I know there are a few women directors for of horror, and I do plan on making a more focused women in horror episode later on. But there was a big controversy with Jason Blum of Blumhouse Productions when he said that he simply didn't know any women directors of horror when he was asked why he never worked with one. I think women in horror are sort of making their own way and they're making their way more in leadership roles and not just the final girl. And I actually do look forward to seeing Karen Kusama. She's going to supposedly be rumored to direct a Dracula adaptation. So that's really cool. So there are, you're going to see are a ton more women in this episode, which is great. Uh, we have a little bit more diversity as well. Not as much as I would hope, uh, but we're getting there. There's also just this, I am like barely scratching the surface of some of these amazing women in Hollywood, and I'm not even talking about worldwide film directors. So let's just dive right in. So we're going to talk about Stephanie Rothman. Stephanie is born in New Jersey, and she takes the same path that many women in early Hollywood did. And she is a director, a screenwriter, and a producer. And she worked in the fun world of exploitation films. Uh, that rocked the 60s and 70s, and this was uh, obviously a haze code nightmare. <laughs> uh, she attended UC Berkeley for sociology, and after watching the film The Seventh Seal, she decided she wanted to make thoughtful films. 
She studied film from 1960 to 1963 at the University of Southern California. She ended up being the first woman ever to win the Directors Guild of America Fellowship, and she ended up getting a job with Roger Corman in 1964. She then worked on films like Queen of Blood, Bloodbath, Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet, and Beach Ball with Corman, where she did practically everything from write scenes to scouting locations and even editing. She's quoted as saying, It was rare for anyone who did not have family connections to find employment in the film industry in or outside the jurisdiction of labor unions. It was even rarer for a woman to be hired. It was traditional to exclude us from nearly all types of work behind the camera. Now, I mean, like I said, everything's still going on pretty similar today, but it's thanks to women like Stephanie that we are kind of getting, we're getting there, we're getting there. (laughs) After all the work that she did with Corman, she finally got the opportunity to direct her first movie, which was Bikini World in 1965. Uh, She did not enjoy that experience at all and actually took a seven-year break from filmmaking after that. Corman created a new studio called New World Pictures and brought Stephanie on as a writer and director, which led her to her second movie, The Student Nurses. Now, she was given a little bit more creative freedom to explore topics like abortion and immigration in this, continuing our major theme throughout the decades of women having all these really heavy themes in their films. She actually had no idea that this film she was working on was an exploitation film and had to look up the definition of what an exploitation film was. And she uh, said, oh, I didn't know I was making exploitation films. I think that's great. She later directed The Velvet Vampire, which became a cult sensation. She left Corman's studio in the early 1970s to create Dimension Pictures, where she did some work writing and directing for films like Group Marriage, Terminal Island, and Working Girls. She still would like to be involved in a major motion picture, but she hasn't been credited in anything since 1978. So up next, we have Amy Heckerling, and she spent a lot of time reading books on film and watching films to learn from them, and she actually ended up knowing so much from these, it really helped her career at NYC Tisch School of the Arts. So she learned a lot of theory and practice there, and after that, she decided to follow her friend to the American Film Institute. Her first job in the industry was lip-syncing dailies uh, for a TV show. Uh, Wow, that sounds like a nightmare. In her second year earning her MFA, she made the film Getting It Over With, which ended up being about a young woman's antics to lose her virginity before her 20th birthday. She was actually in the post-production process when she was unfortunately involved in a car accident where she was hit by a drunk driver. Uh, This not only caused a collapsed lung among other issues, but it also caused amnesia. And the amnesia ultimately got her fired from her editing job since she couldn't remember where she had put some of the footage. Uh, Eventually she was able to finish the film, but it ended up not being really well received. Eventually, Tom Mount of Universal Pictures took an interest in her and hired her. Her first feature was Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and after this, she was given many different teen movie scripts, and she turned some of them down because she ended up getting sort of typecast as a director of teen films. Her other notable films are National Lampoon's European Vacation, Johnny Dangerously, Look Who's Talking, and its sequels, which... I was obsessed with when I was younger, especially the one about the talking dogs. Uh, Don't know why. Um, She wrote and directed Clueless. And yeah, we love some Paul Rudd, who is obviously a vampire because he doesn't age. I Can Never Be Your Woman. 
Vamps, and an episode of The Office. In 1999, she received the Women in Film Crystal Award for Outstanding Women Who Through Endurance and Excellence Have Helped to Expand the Role of Women in the Entertainment Industry. Woo! Uh, I'm probably not going to go as in-depth in all of these amazing women because there are quite a lot this this episode, which is great. So next up we have Elaine May, and she also was in all facets of show business from screen to stage. And she was in a popular comedy group in the 1950s and moved to Chicago to start the Compass Players, and their shows were often sold out. She would also write, act in, and direct plays. Eventually, they ended their comedy group, and Elaine started her film journeys in the 1970s. She made her first film in 1971, A New Leaf, which she wrote, directed, and acted in. This is actually based on Jack Ritchie's short story, The Green Heart. In 1972, she directed The Heartbreak Kid, which was a huge success, and was on AFI's list of one of the top comedies. After her comedic success, she wrote and directed a crime drama, Mikey and Nikki, which had a ton of trouble and ended up costing her job at Paramount Pictures. She eventually got her job back after holding two reels of the negative as hostage. Uh, That's one way to get your job back, I guess. Uh, Someone, don't try that at home. She got another chance to direct with the film Ishtar in 1987, and that had a pretty doomed uh, and bad production as well. She actually ended up not directing again until 2016 when she directed a documentary, Mike Nichols, American Masters. And May was awarded the National Medal of Arts for her lifetime contributions by President Barack Obama in a ceremony in the White House on July 10th in 2013. That's pretty dang awesome. All right. So up next, we have Mary Heron. Mary is born in Canada and spent a lot of time between there and L.A., where her mother was actually discovered by Stanley Kubrick, which brought her a lot of interest in the industry growing up around that. She began as a writer in New York, then directed her first film in 1996, I Shot Andy Warhol, which was about the assassination attempt on Andy Warhol. Her second film was in 2000, and that was American Psycho. And she was sort of drawn to the project because she liked the darker and satirical tones of the book. And there was actually obviously a lot of controversy when this film was coming out. And it was kind of, she was like kind of poo-pooed for being a woman directing it. But she really enjoyed her experience on that. And uh, I mean, it's it's a huge fan favorite. Everybody loves um, American Psycho. And there, I mean, that's a, there are great scenes in that. So I couldn't imagine that not ever being made. The next film she makes is The Notorious Betty Page, which she did a ton of actual research on Betty Page's life. And she saw Betty as a feminist icon for female sexual liberation. She was, however, disappointed with the negative reviews of the movie because men wanted the male experience. She then came out and said she doesn't necessarily make feminist films on purpose, but she embraces the title of a woman's history's filmmaker. She has been often cited as a big feminist filmmaker, but like I said, she says she's more of a woman's history's filmmaker. Her other work includes The Moth Diaries, Charlie Says, and a few episodes of television shows, including the show Oz. She was also a part of the film Fatales, which was a women's independent filmmaker collective, which has the best name ever. Like I said, some of these, because we have more modern directors, I'm not going to go into huge amounts of detail in their lives. Some of the women who had earlier careers... 
definitely I went a little bit more in detail with. Up next, we're going to talk about Catherine Bigelow, who is amazing. So Catherine has a great career in both directing and screenwriting and made history by being the first woman ever to win the Oscar for Best Director for her film The Hurt Locker in 2008. So some of her films include Near Dark, the moody vampire movie, which of course, yes, I've seen, uh, Point Break, Zero Dark Thirty, and more. Uh, her style of filmmaking is very unique, combining traditional and non-traditional Hollywood styles, and she's known for having high, intense action films that are pretty violent. She's also known to go to the extreme when actually filming and goes to any measure to get any shot that she wants or needs. Okay, so next is Ava DuVernay, who is a queen. Uh, Ava is definitely a huge game changer in the world of women directors as a filmmaker and a distributor. She actually originally started in journalism and was assigned to cover the OJ murder trial and eventually got very disillusioned with journalism and moved away from that. She was the first African-American woman to win the directing award for the dramatic competition at Sundance in 2012, and she ends up becoming the first for a lot of awards, which is fantastic. Um, It's sad that it's taken this long. She was the first African-American woman to be nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Director on Selma and the first to be nominated for an Academy Award. Ava would visit her stepfather some summers near Selma, and this sparked her interest, and her time there inspired her uh, making the film. She moved to PR and marketing for films like Spy Kids and Shrek 2 at some point, obviously before she wins all these amazing awards. And her first short film was in 2005, which was based on her mother's life experiences, which showed a struggling single mother living in L.A. She would then move on to making more documentaries. She made her first narrative feature film called I Will Follow in 2011. She was also nominated in 2017 for Best Director of a Documentary. She was the first African-American woman to direct a live-action film to gain $100 million at the box office, and that film was A Wrinkle in Time. She also directed the documentary 13th, which is about the 13th Amendment, and she created, produced, co-wrote, and directed the limited series When They See Us, which won a Critics' Choice Award. Obviously, a badass. Okie dokie, next is Tamara Davis. She began her career with making music videos and ended up making 155 of them for bands like Sonic Youth and Black Flag. She really liked making music videos because they challenged her and allowed her to experiment and she took all of that knowledge with her when she ended up directing films and television. And she also said there was a lot less sexism in the music video production world. While she worked for MTV, she was encouraged to engage in her empathy to multicultural and feminist issues, which led her to become a major feminist player in the film world. She wanted to use her platform to empower girls. In 1992, she directed her first film, Gun Crazy, which was a remake and was said to be inspired by the Bonnie and Clyde film in terms of looks and aesthetics. Her other films include Billy Madison, Crossroads, yes, that one with Britney Spears, Skipped Parts, and episodes of shows like My Name is Earl, Ugly Betty, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and Empire. We also have Mary Lambert, 
Lambert also started working on music videos and worked with Janet Jackson and Madonna's for videos like Nasty and Material Girl. In 1987, she debuted her first feature film, Siesta, which was controversial and won an IFP Spirit Award. She also directed Pet Cemetery and its sequel and more recently did Urban Legends Bloody Mary and the sci-fi channel classic Mega Python vs. Gatoroid, which means to me that she kind of likes, she has a fun sort of sense when it comes to filming. So next we have Karen Kusama, and after graduating from NYU where she got her BFA in film and TV, she ended up working as an editor on documentaries and a production designer for independent films. While working as a nanny, she met filmmaker John Sayles, who was working on the film Lone Star at the time, and she became his assistant for a while. And she began boxing at a gym in New York where she got inspired to make her film Girl Fight. In 1994, she began work on Girl Fight and had a hard time financing it due to the fact that she wanted a main character to be Latina and non-white. Eventually, with help from John Sayles, she was able to finance it and release it in 2000. It wasn't considered a financial success, but it won an award at Sundance. Her next film in 2005 was Aeon Flux, and she did not have any control on the final cut, making the film different in many ways of the choices she made, and taught her the important lesson that she would never work on a film she didn't have control over again. Her next film in 2009 was Jennifer's Body, where she was trying to create a film where women can see themselves in a role. She later said this and Aeon Flux were both films that helped her navigate the studio system. In 2015, she directed the horror film The Invitation, which was written by her husband, which received many awards and lots of praise. She has been working on television now on shows like Halt and Catch Fire and Billions. And she is known as a feminist filmmaker and often has themes of loss and anxiety in her films. A couple other women who I just kind of want to point out, I'm not going to give anything big on them, are Penelope Spheres, who directed Wayne's World, Penny Marshall, who did A League of Their Own, Big, Riding in Cars with Boys... And then Patty Jenkins, who obviously did Wonder Woman and uh, Monster with the film with Charlize Theron. And she said one of her big inspirations is actually Catherine Bigelow. So you will see that I'm really only talking about directors and films that are more Hollywood based, not always exactly documentary based, but that will be in other episodes where I talk a little bit more about documentarians. I might even have to talk about television directors so I can bring more women of color into the fold. Um, it is unfortunate that, like I said, there aren't a lot of women in color. Luckily, we had a couple on our list today, which was great. Um, there is a huge disparity of Latinx representation in the whole film industry and uh, that's obviously seen here but i do know a couple of women like Gigi Salguerero and Gloria Calderon Kellett who directs the show one day at a time which is amazing you should watch it there are definitely way more women on this list than the previous episodes and i'm really not even diving deep into the independent directors that much and this is just pretty mainstream hollywood so i hope that in the coming years we are able to see way more women taking the mantle of director to really give us more perspective and more stories. Well, this ends our journey with directors, and for now, maybe, who knows, we could come back to this topic. We never know. I think I will have one more mini-sode about a particular director, maybe two, but the next pick topic that we're going to be covering is editors, which I'm obviously particularly excited for because uh, I'm an editor, and there are so many amazing films that were edited by women, and I cannot wait to gush about them. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Wear your face mask. Bye. This has been The Celluloid Ceiling, a podcast researched, created, and edited by me. 
Special thanks to my dad, Mark Castaneda, for doing the music. 